boys and girls. It's time for another MOH podcast. And uh, this is Jim Patton, your host. This week, we're going to be doing another Winky tape. Uh, This is one I've cleaned up as well as I could. It was a very old tape. Uh, It appears to be from the summer of 1971. Uh, I say that because of Winky's reference to being in Reedley, California, where there was a revival in the summer of 1971 that lasted for 10 weeks. It It was an amazing move of God where people were getting saved without anyone even talking to them about the Lord. The people that were there who were working in the revival saw so so much need that they actually prayed and asked the Lord to save people without them even having to talk to him. And that was actually happening. People were just getting saved and coming and looking for these meetings and uh, giving their lives to the Lord. And then there was a, a huge influx of people getting saved who had no, a lot of them had no uh, religious background whatsoever. They didn't know anything about Jesus. This is a place where uh, our friend uh, Barry McGuire first gave his life to the Lord. Uh, there was teaching there by uh, a theologian named Gordon Olson. Winky Prattney did a lot of teaching. The Holy Spirit just moved powerfully, and these, these kids needed to be discipled. And so the tape we have today was titled, The King's Subjects. Just think about it. If there's a kingdom and a king, the king has to rule over somebody. So who does he rule over but us? In the grand scheme of things, it's a short version, although it's an hour and 15 minutes, which is a little bit longer than what we usually have. There's a little information about a lot of things. And so we're just going to get started. Get your pencils out. You're going to want to take notes because you're going to want to look these things up and uh, get ready for the, the, the tape that was called The King's Subjects. Bibles, please. The book of John chapter 5, and we're looking at some verses right near the end of the chapter. Jesus talking to the Pharisees says this, I have a greater witness, verse 36, than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him you believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from man. But I know you that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him will you receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Now the Gospel of John was written to produce faith in the heart of people. It's uh, probably the best gospel to give to a person who's interested in finding out what the Christian life is all about. So the Gospel of John is basically a gospel that tells us about faith in the Son of God.
And here the Lord takes a group of men who prided themselves in being the most religiously perfect men that ever walked the face of the earth, the Pharisees. And I don't know if you know what it took to be a Pharisee in those days. We have, we just know the bad connotation now. We call people Pharisees if they're hypocrites. But in those days, to be a Pharisee was really something else. First of all, there were the scribes. The scribes were men who prided themselves on, on uh, very accurately copying out the scriptures. Now, they didn't have printing presses in those days, so what they had to do is they had to sit down and by hand write out. And of course, it's in Hebrew, so you start backwards in Hebrew. You start in the back of the book and you walk to the front. And uh, they had to do these little Hebrew letters. Got to learn to think backwards and then. These scribes would very carefully copy what had already been written just with, with their pen. They would carefully make the marks. And I told some of you earlier, the scribes were so accurate that when it came to that unpronounceable name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Yahweh, or whatever, uh, uh, it's just a bunch of consonants here. There's no vowels in Hebrew, so it could be anything. And the Jews never pronounced the name, so you couldn't tell them which one it was. When you came to that holy and unpronounceable name, they would check out every single thing they'd written all the way back to when they began. And then they would pick up a new pen and write in that holy name and then throw their old pen away and then keep on working. And if they came to that name just a couple of words on, they'd check back everything all the way to when they started and then they would take their pens up again write in the name, a brand new pen, throw the other one away. And that's the way they did it. So this was to be a scribe. You could imagine what kind of dedication you had. And that's how accurate the, the uh, translations and copies have come to us. They had this real reverence for the Word of God, very, very careful that they copied it exactly as it was given. Now that was to be a scribe. There was another class of men in Jesus' day, and they were lawyers. Now, the lawyers were scribes who had spent so long in copying out the manuscripts that they really felt they understood what it said, see? And you would, too, if you <laughs> did that kind of care. And eventually, some of the men prided themselves on being able to interpret the law, not only copy it, but to interpret it. They would say, listen, it's obvious by comparing this with this that this is what this means. Those were the lawyers, all right? And then came a third class. They were out of the scribes and out of the lawyers. They were men that not only had learned a reverence for the word, but had and felt they were able to understand it. Came the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the holiest of all the holy. They were people who prided themselves not only in being able to copy it, to interpret it, but also to do it. So they were the super cool of their day. And understand... Jesus came to these men to whom Moses had almost become like a god. You, every time somebody did something, they said, now Moses said this. They really, gung-ho, they really knew Moses' writings. And the Lord Jesus dared say something to them that absolutely blew their mind. The Pharisees said, we believe Moses. Jesus said, you do not believe Moses. 
He said, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. And boom, 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 their minds all blew, see? Remember, these people were fundamental, scripture-believing, uh, absolutely dedicated to carrying out type things, the law of Moses. The Pharisees said they did believe Moses. Jesus said they didn't believe Moses. And this is a very scary thing. Jesus walked in with a two-edged sword, and he went, whoosh, 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 which bothered them no end. <laughs> now, here's a question that we must ask men today who say they believe in Jesus. Do they believe Moses? Now, let's look at what Moses did actually teach and what it meant to believe in Moses, or what Moses said. Essentially, to believe Moses was not to believe in Moses as a, you know, to look up to him as sort of the whole standard of being a person, but essentially to believe in Moses was to believe that what he presented to the world by the inspiration of God and what he presented to Israel was true, and that it was a revelation directly from heaven. The law, Scripture tells us, was given by Moses. In other words, you must believe in the authority of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave. Now, who gave these Ten Commandments? God gave the Ten Commandments. Therefore, the Ten Commandments are important. And when we study law today, uh, God's law, we must see that it is God who gave those things. To believe in Moses meant uh, not only in believing in a revelation from God, but it also meant to believe in a holy life. In Leviticus 11:45, Moses said on God's behalf, I am Jehovah your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And with this holy command came a promise. The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that you may live. That's Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. So God gave originally a commandment that men ought to be holy and he said, I will actually do something to your lives. I will change your life around so that you can do what I ask you to do. I will give you power to keep my commandments. And notice when this is given, not, not in the New Testament, the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. To believe in Moses meant to believe in the necessity of redemption by blood. And the, I never understood this blood sacrifice thing until I understood two things. One, the Bible tells us the life of the flesh is in the blood. And blood represents life. Scriptures say, if somebody sheds man's blood, by whom shall man's blood be shed? Life for life. And the other thing I didn't understand is the shock value of that Old Testament sacrifice. When I was a little kid, I saw my granddad butcher a lamb. It was Easter time, and I didn't know what they were doing. I was only a little kid. And I didn't even remember this until years later when I was worrying, you know, I thought, how in the world could a lamb... Uh, ever have much effect, you know, on people's lives? How could that show them how rotten their sin was in that? And I walked up, I was just a little kid, I walked up 
I saw all these men standing around in a circle, you know, on this my granddad's phone. I walked up, you know, you kid, you wonder what's happening. I stuck my head in the middle of the circle just as I cut this little lamb's throat. And, oh, I ran in a straight line for about two miles, jumping over fences and yelling at the top of my voice. That was the shockingest thing I've ever seen in my life. This little, and a lamb is such a helpless thing. It hasn't got sharp teeth, it can't bite, it hasn't got big claws, it can scratch people with it. It's just a helpless little thing. And I thought, oh, you know, I never, never, never connected that till years later I was thinking, here, once a year, these men would take a pet lamb, the one that they'd brought up in their household, and they would offer it as a sacrifice to show God they, the necessity of it of a substitute for the penalty they deserve. And we'll come under this when we get into the atonement. To believe in Moses was also to believe that one day he would send a messenger from God. He said, I'll raise up a true prophet. And you'll read this in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, in verses 18 and 19. I will raise them up a prophet I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. It shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require of it. Now the Pharisees knew about this. They should have really got shook up and repented when Jesus came in and said, This is what has been said. Are you doing it? They didn't. They managed to avoid all these things. The important thing we want to see here is that Jesus appealed to Moses as a basis of, first of all, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me. And today, I think, when we talk to kids on the street, there is not an understanding of what Moses said and what Moses gave to the world. And usually, if you talk to people and you talk to them about having faith, that is the most alien thing in their minds possible. And I used to go and say, listen, why don't you believe so you can get saved? And the kid would say, saved from what? And I'd say, saved from sin. He'd say, what's that? You know, and that, you know, you'd say, well, you know, it's all something, you know, you should get saved from it anyway, whatever it is. And this really has been no intelligent teaching on the law of God. So we're going to look today at what the law of God is. I think Satan has sold a lie to this generation. And the lie I've heard very, very often repeated, often by sincere men of God, preachers, never bother to read the Bible, is this. God gave man the Ten Commandments because he knew they couldn't keep them. Now, you think about that for a little while. We have talked about the king. We've talked about his kindness, his mercy, his justice, his love. I'm committed to these two things, that God really is loving and God really is just. Now, let's look at that statement on the board and think about it intelligently for a second. God gave man the Ten Commandments because he knew he couldn't keep them. And he did this to show just how just and holy he was. Now, it sounds, it sounds all right until you think about it for a while. Let me put you now in the role of a father or a mother has a little kid. 
comes up and he says to the kid something plainly and clearly impossible. He says to the kid, Kid, right now, fly around the room. The kid says, What's that? He says, You just fly like the birdies do, right now. So the kid says, All right. Nothing happened. Dad knows all this, of course. Fully aware that the kid can't fly, but he wants to show his justice. So the dad says to the kid, you better try harder, kid, because you're not doing so well. And the kid goes, <laughs> and the dad says, kid, unless you fly in the next 15 seconds, I'm going to kill you for your disobedience. <laughs> and the dad is showing his love and justice this way. Now, you present a God like that to a secular man, and if he laughs at you, you deserve to be laughed at. I am convinced when God gave man the Ten Commandments, he expected him to keep them. He said, I will show you enough of my love that you will understand who I am and want to keep them. Let's look at the Bible and see what it says. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5 and verse 4, we hear Moses speak these words. Deuteronomy 5, 4. Is man able to obey? Is man able to do what God tells him to do? Is man able to keep the commandments of God if he loves the one who gives them? Is man able to do what God asks? Moses apparently thought so because he spoke to all Israel and he said, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. And then in Deuteronomy 6, in verse 24, we see why the Lord gave these commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 24 says, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And then look at Deuteronomy 10 and verses 12 to 13. And there's many, many passages just in this uh Book alone, you find it in 11, 22, and uh, Deuteronomy 26, verses 10 to 19, all of these passages. Deuteronomy 28, 47, verses 58 to 59, all contain things like this. And here is a sum up. What does God ask of man? Moses told us, What doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Deuteronomy 10, 12, but to fear the Lord thy God. That means to reverence. And there's a difference, by the way, between fear, which is a slavish fear, and fear, which is the fear of God. And it's hard to explain because it's the same word. It's like one is this, ah, type fear. It's that kind of fear, see. And the other one is the kind of thing that happens if we said that the President of the United States was out here in this little side room and there's a battery of 15 television cameras and on national network they... He came to Reedley to find out what was happening here to see if there was any hope for the nation. And he was going to 
call you in to interview you for 10 minutes on national television. See, and just before the door is up, you know all this, you know he's behind the desk, you know the television camera's all zoomed in. Just before the door opens, how do you feel? See, that's, that's what this one, they're only a lot worse, you know. It's the instinctive response to a tiny, finite being when he bumps right into the one who put him together. It's that, to fear the Lord thy God, to honor him, reverence him, and to walk in all his ways and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you this day for your good. Now remember what Moses is talking about. He's not talking about an angry, stamping bitter God. It's going around saying, you wait till I kill them, you wait, you wait, you wait. This is a horrible idea. I don't know where people get that idea. Some people have the idea the Father is very angry. You know, he is standing around in heaven saying, I've got to have blood, I've got to have blood, you know. And then Jesus goes around and he says, calm down, Dad. You know, I'll die for them. This is a horrible picture of God. It may interest you to know that the Godhead all think and feel the same way. When God is angry with sin, Jesus is just as angry with sin. The Holy Spirit is just as angry with sin. Matter of fact, I don't see two different Bibles, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In the Old Testament, often people say God was angry and hateful and bitter, but in the New Testament, Jesus came to show instead a God that was loving. He sort of changed men's picture of God. That the person who said that has never read the Bible, has never read some of the Old Testament verses that talk about God weeping over man and God's kindness and his mercy. And it's just my interest to know that person to know who thinks there is two different kinds of God. Jesus in the New Testament, all soft and sentimental, and Old Testament God, all hard and unloving. It's just my interest to know that there's one person who spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible, and it was the Lord Jesus. You see, there is not two gods in the Bible. There is only one, and there always has been one. Sometimes you get a comparative religion class in college or something, and they give you all kinds of garbage, quite without foundation. Now, let's look again at uh, another guy, Joshua. Did Joshua think people could keep God's commands? Moses, maybe Moses was mistaken when he gave those things, and uh, Joshua would have corrected the impression afterwards. Joshua chapter 22 and verse 5. Joshua 22, 5 says this, Take diligent heed to do the commandments and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and serve him with all your heart and soul. What about David? David was the one who wrote psalms and all that. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel. What did David understand? Psalm 103, verses 17 to 18. Psalm 103, 17 to 18 says this, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep the covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. And how did David serve God? Did he say, 
when he looked at these Ten Commandments, did he say, oh, what a rotten thing that is, what an absolute drag to have to... Psalm 40, verse 8, tells us what David felt about God's law. He said, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now, we could go right through the Bible and find this, but let's look to the New Testament and see what Jesus said. First of all, some people have this idea, Jesus came to throw out the Ten Commandments. When Jesus came, he threw out the Ten Commandments. Well, let's look and see what he said. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18. And in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, we read these words. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, I don't know whether you know what a jot or a tittle is. I never knew what a jot or a tittle was until I looked at some Hebrew. There's two Hebrew letters that look a bit like this, see? The only difference between these two is that one's got a little curly Q stuck on the top to tell you that it's a different letter, okay? And there is a tiniest little letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like a little inverted comma like that. That's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus said, not one of these nor one of those is going to pass away till all be fulfilled. That's a jot and a tittle. So that's how careful Jesus was about his law, the law. Remember who gave this law? God did. So Jesus is not going to say, all right, my father was wrong, and I've come here to bust it all up again. Now, let's look at Romans seven twelve. The apostle Paul is a good man to hear a testimony from about the law of God. After all, wasn't he the one who got saved out of a life of legalism and pharisaical things? Listen to what Paul says, Romans 7, 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. So we have to see here there's nothing wrong with the law. In a second you'll see the difference between the law and the gospel. In 1 Timothy 1, 8, Paul tells us something else about the law of God. He says, 1 Timothy 1.8, We know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And now I'm going to give you a little principle of study that may be interesting to you when you're reading three different Gospels. Because some of you notice as you read your Bibles through that there are actually... Three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that have some of the same stories in them. Now, John is pretty different. It has only one story in it, as far as I know, one basic story that is in all four Gospels. is There's about 13 or 14 little different incidents in one or two parables that are in all four Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll often find the same story slightly different in each case. And sometimes I've seen skeptics come up and say, aha, you say the Bible is inspired, right? Right. And they say, 
All right, now I want you to look at this passage and you tell me which one of these is right because this one says this and the other one says this. I'll give you a little principle here that might be very helpful to you. I want you to look at two passages, Matthew 22 and verses 36 to 40 and then Mark, which has a parallel passage, Mark 12 and verses 28 to 34. Here we see a story of a young man coming to Jesus. Uh, could you put your finger in both of them somehow? And uh, we're going to just compare these two. Verse 35 of Matthew 22, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All right, that's that passage. Keep your finger in it and buzz over to Mark 12. Very similar story. One of the scribes came in verse 28, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, Namely this, you shall love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And then the scribe goes on and says, Master, you have well said, there's only one basic commandment. I want you to look at this. First is an exercise to show you this, I call it the interweave method. Rather than denying the inspiration of Scripture, these two passages are about to prove to you just how marvelous the Bible is. And I'll show you something here. What I have done here is simply taken the, the accounts that are, that are slightly different, and wherever they differ, write in the extra passage. Say so you're writing two things and you're comparing them, all right? Here's one passage, and it says, it says exactly the same as the other one. You leave it exactly the same as it is, only you drop out the one that's there. Now, this one here has a couple of pieces that are different, and there's nothing up here. You just put that in there. See? And then you come on, and this one has a couple of pieces. This one doesn't have, so you, put, you just leave those in there. When you get another parallel passage, it's exactly the same. You just, again, drop one of them. Now, that's what I've done with this. I haven't altered the order in any way. I've just simply glued them together by taking the different parts of the different accounts. I've done this for you here. You see, I've used two different colors for the two different passages. I've underlined one in yellow and one in orange. And you see the different parts of this thing? See how, it, how different it is? And first of all, I'm going to read it. I'm going to say A when I'm talking about Matthew and B when I'm talking about Mark. I'm, and as I switch from passage to passage, 
taking out the key little bits. I'll say A, B, A, B, B, A, and then I'll read it just through completely without the A's and the B's. And you'll see just how God put this thing together. Understand, two totally different people are writing these things, recording their account. And you watch. One author, two different people. B, and, A, then, B, one of the scribes came, A, one of them, which was a lawyer, B, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving he had answered well, uh, A, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? B, which is the first commandment of all? Uh, A, and Jesus said unto him, uh, A, said unto him, B, and answered him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. A, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. B, and with all thy strength. This is the first A and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, B, namely this. A, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. B, there is none other commandment greater than these. A, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All right, now listen. And then one of the scribes came, one of them, which was a lawyer. And having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered well, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus said unto him and answered him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, namely this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is none other commandment greater than these. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now how about that, Paul fan? Do you see the intense harmony there? And here's two different, totally different guys writing at totally different times. And then one author putting this guy with exact, duplicating just enough to make his story make perfect sense in itself, and giving this guy just enough to make his story have perfect sense and read in perfect English, put them together, and they weave absolutely perfectly, just like a writer sat down and did the whole story in great fullness. One author, two different writers. When we get a little further on in the inspiration of scriptures, as we deal with the Western man, you'll see some more mind-blowing things. There's nothing compared to some of the goodies there are in the Bible. Anyway, let's, by the way, before we flash off this, let's just use this to deal with one big problem that many skeptics have talked about. You'll find it in, uh, in the book of Acts. If you rapidly zap over to Acts and find the different passages where Paul gives his testimony about what happened to him when he got saved. Well, haven't you found the first passage when Paul gets saved? Sing out. Acts 9 is one passage. And then another passage in Acts 22. And there is another passage still in Acts 26. All right, let's look at just 9 and 22 and do a quick comparison here. 
So you have to solve some of your problems. See, some people run into a problem like this and they stop dead. They say, ah, oh, you know, if I go any further, I'll lose my faith, you know. So they never press on and find the riches God has designed that are the very problems. Here, Acts 9, you just see something that I want to pull out. The Bible tells us in verse 7 of Acts 9 that the man which journeyed with Paul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Then, if we look, however, over in Acts 22, we see these things. Verse 9, And they that were with me saw indeed the light. But they heard not the voice of him that spoke with me. Now, I've seen this toted out by skeptics in open-air meetings, you know, as it just goes to show you that either Paul was lying or the Bible wasn't very accurate when it was written, because here it says they saw the light and they didn't hear the voice, and here it said they heard a voice and they didn't see anything. Now, run your interweave on the thing and you'll find a beautiful truth hidden right in the thing. First of all, look at the passage just before this. I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Now look at the other passage in Acts 9 and see the words that come immediately before this. Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city. Run an interweave on it, and you've got a beautiful thing. The Lord zaps Paul off his horse with a laser beam or something. You know, when he falls off. And then the Lord speaks to him, and nobody else hears that. All they do is see the light, and they're scared stiff. There's this beam going right out of here. They can't hear anything. All they hear is Paul. Now, why doesn't the Lord make his voice known to them? Because this is Paul's conversion experience. And whenever the Lord deals with you, he does it in a very personal, intimate way. You can tell the whole world what's happening between him and me. He comes and he says, first he says, Paul knows that this is the boss. You know, nobody shines laser beams out of heaven. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am, notice what Jesus does. Not, I am Jesus, but quickly believe on me and it's all right. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting, go on club. Oh, you mean the one that I am fighting for, I am fighting against? Right, you know that. And then the people saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. And do you know what he said? Lord, what do you want me to do? He didn't have to say that, but he did. And that marks his surrender. What will you have me to do? Lord, what will you have me to do? And then, notice these people are just sitting there seeing a light and Paul saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? They think he's gone nuts. What is this thing? We're all freaking out, see? And then the voice speaks and everybody hears it. Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told you what you shall do. And they all say, whoever that is, we're going into the city, you know? <laughs> Understand, they're going to beat up all the Christians. 
Now, Saul said, I saw the light and it was Jesus and we're not to fight the Christians anymore. They'd say, this guy's gone nuts. Throw him in jail or kill him. See that? But when the Lord spoke and told everybody, somebody had to take Paul to the city. He was blind now. Do you see the beauty of this thing? And if you can push him past the problem, you'll get a blessing. Don't get a hand up. Keep, look at that and say, oh, you know, my faith is gone. If I read one more verse, you know, push through. Friends, push in. You can trust the Bible. It's been around for a long time. Now, friends, on rapidly here, and we're going to go into the whole basis of right and wrong. Kids today in society have, I think, three basic hassles. What is true, what is valuable, and what gives meaning? The gospel gives an answer, a profoundly simple answer to those three questions. What is true? God is truth. Why do I have meaning in life? Because God made you in his image. And what is valuable? God has defined it for us by his law of love. Now, I want you just to draw a simple little chart here. Uh, like this. Start with the word love, then draw a little arrow, and then put the Ten Commandments. Then draw another little arrow and put the Two Commandments. And then do one more little arrow and put the word love. And that sums up the way God has revealed his law to men. Originally in the garden, love has always been the law. And I'm going to define for you this law now because it is probably the single most important definition that you'll have in this whole training course. What is love? A little while later, we'll learn to apply this to see how God's heart has been broken, his love has been injured. But love is basically this, an unselfish choice for the highest good and it is a wise choice you wanted a full definition you could add to this highest good you could add of God and his universe according to their real relative, as God defines value, values. In other words, a mosquito's life is not as important as a man's. And you see that there's a scale of values, and God has told us what is the most valuable thing. That's why he's defined for us a set of guidelines and laws tell us the relative merits or demerits of various invasion of other people's rights and God's rights. So that's what love is. In the Garden of Eden, that law was understood. This thing is written on the heart. I want to very rapidly, those of you who have manuals, uh, you could flash over to Judas here, but I'm going to rapidly give you, a, we asked this question yesterday, how do men know right and wrong when they never heard the gospel? The point is they don't need to know the gospel to know right and wrong. The gospel is a is a more mysterious thing to the unsaved man than the law is. That's why we're talking about the law today. 
And that's why the law is a schoolmaster to bring man to Christ. See, the gospel needs to be explained to somebody, but the law never does. The law always makes its impression and, and power felt. Everything I've ever met knows about the law of God, but not very many sinners know what God has done in order to bring a man back who's broken it. That's why we use the law. It's a message of communication. It gets through strongly. Watch this. I'm going to give you a quick picture first of man. The sheets that you have in your hands, do you have the uh, uh, man and the origin of evil? Do you have those with you? You haven't got those. Um, I don't know whether we've got any here. Greg, could you check through there and see if there's any man in the origin of evil? If there aren't, I want you to draw this psychedelic diagram, please. A famous psychedelic diagram. Going to spend five minutes on man, which is the second largest subject in the Bible. <laughs> Believe these things. Just simply define like this. Man is a, remember, a three-part being. Body has a soul, he has a spirit. Made in God's image. Just as the sun has a physical representation of the Godhead, so man has a body which represents his own being. See that? In other words, if I was to take one of you and say, all right, here we have a body, this is a body part, this is not actually her, this is just the house she lives in, but it represents her. If I want to talk to a person, you know, then I have to talk to his body because that, you know, I say, hi, body, you know, and, and uh, I've got to, in order to find out what the person's really like, I have to talk to their exterior house. If I want to find out what God the Father is like, I have to see what Jesus is like because he's the exterior exterior representation. Do you see that? Man has a soul, which is his essential life. No luck, Degra? It's all right. <laughs> Tell Tony to get someone. He goes back. He has a soul, and he has a spirit. The Holy Spirit can speak to him directly without him having any sense knowledge, and this is very important when we talk to the secular man. You'll see some of the reasons why God has uh, said man is guilty. His body consists of three things. He has bones. That's kind of the skeleton. The whole, uh, you know, the whole of his house sort of hangs on. If I had my little, uh, my little book somewhere here. Good. All right, friends. Look quickly at these goodies. See, you have some bones. That's pretty obvious, I hope. Uh, write down a few things. Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Basic elements, God put together man from basic elements of the earth. Psalm 139, 14. God designed the whole power of man the whole fantastic pattern. Man is God's highest creation. No more fantastic being than a man. People ask me, is it, do you think there's life on other planets? I'll say, if there is, it's inferior to man. Because man is God's highest creation. You are only seeing messed up man at the moment. You wait till you see new man with new bodies. In God's new world, then you'll really see what man is supposed to be like. 
See? We, we see a messy man at the moment. You look at your body, it's all messed up. Kids' lives are all messed up, and you think, well, that's man, you know. They're worse than bugs. Bugs don't get messed up like that. But you haven't seen new man yet. See, we're starting in here, and then God one day gives us new shells, and we're in business. We have a soul. They, uh, let's put the rest of it. Flesh. The word flesh does not always mean moral. It can mean just, the, you know, the tissue, bone, skin, fat. Some of you are going to lose a bit today when you go on your fast. Not much, but <laughs> enough. Then blood. Your blood is kind of your garbage disposal and oxygenators and other things. It carries goodies around and keeps your physical life going. That's the life of the flesh is in the blood. If you suck all your blood out like a vampire, then you're not going to have much physical life. Your soul will depart for the regions beyond. Feelings are an important thing. God has given you the power to feel. He's given you the power to think. He's given you the power to choose. And that basically is your soul. Psychology is a study, suitcase, of the soul. That's where we got our name from, psychology, suitcase, the soul. So a study of the soul is a study of our personality, who we really are. To think involves our memories, all of those things. The feelings involves our experiences, pleasure, pain, all of those things. And will is that mysterious ability of self-creation, being able to choose. Now, I'm not going to do the study for you. You'll have to look. There's some scriptures in the Bible on feeling. And there's some in the Bible on thinking, and there's some on feeling and choosing and a number of others. Now you do your own studies, I've done mine. Spirit, we have three things about the human spirit. And by the way, this is what makes us unique from animals. Man has a spirit that is tuned Godward. Intuition. He has the ability to know things in his consciousness that he has not perceived by his sense knowledge. Now, the girls always understand this better than the guys do. Because a girl usually relies heavily on this kind of thing in order to make decisions. She says, Sends out this radar beam, whip, whip, whip. right, you know, and then makes decisions on that. Guy almost never understands a girl's kind of thinking or process of deduction using this thing. But girls rely heavily on it. Some guys can too. And, uh, but uh, basically, I think the girl understands this better. The intuitive knowledge. A lot of girls, they meet somebody, they say, I don't like them, you know, you boom. <laughs> It's like, why not? You haven't even seen them. I don't know. I just don't like them. There's something, you know. That's that thing, all right? And then devotion. Devotion is the ability or the capacity to worship. And this is unique in man. Now, a dog can come up and lick your hand, all right? You like this? But I have never seen a bunch of dogs all gathered around a little statue of Snoopy going, Allah, Allah, sis, boom, woof, woof. I've never seen that happen in my life. It may have happened, but I doubt it. I think animals have some measure of being able to praise God, you know, little birds sing and stuff like that. But we're talking about a unique thing, the ability to fellowship with God directly. That's why God has given us a spirit. 
He can come and live right in here with us. Not live in a house, on a temple on a hill, but live in us, this temple. And then we've got a conscience inside us, commonly known as a conscience. Science to know, con with, to know alongside of with. Now, a conscience is like a watch. It's a comparison standard. I look at my watch, it's usually wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is because I never set it properly against the standard. I always set it earlier so that I'll make things on time. But your conscience is just like a watch. It's designed to be connected with a standard and set by that standard. And if it is set correctly, it can regulate the rest of your being. However, it is possible to burn the conscience, to sear it, to make it insensitive, just as it's possible to jump up and down on my watch and boil it in salt water for a couple of years and then hope it'll give me good time. It will not. And the first thing that happens when a man comes back to God is that God begins to heal his conscience and make it more sensitive. And you'll know that. Some of you, before you became Christians, you did things so ghastly you never even thought about them, see? And one of the first signs of really knowing God is you start to get really bothered about things that you weren't bothered about before. Because God starts to heal your conscience. A mysterious healing of the conscience. Beautiful thing. Now, let's look at these three parts of a man's being. You can't really chop a man up and still keep him a man. If you pull his body away, poof, you've blown the man. You pull his soul away, poof, you've got no man. Pull his spirit away, poof, you've got no man. Just like you take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit away, and you've got no God. Do you see that? It, it, it's exact parallel here. Now, watch this. First of all, let's look at our bodies and see what testimonies God has placed around us. Well, he's placed our environment around us as a testimony to his greatness. Do you wonder why so many people today do not turn their eyes towards God? Because man has garbaged up our environment. It's very hard to think of the grandeur of God when you look at a Burbank sky. I come out in the morning and look at the beautiful sky to praise the Lord, you know. <coughs> and this gray garbage is all over the place. I go to look at the mountain and I can see it dimly through the orange-red <laughs> cloudy sky. So, environment was originally designed as a beautiful testimony. That's why so many kids, I think, go back to the woods, you know. It's like going back to, to where home is from, see. And, and you can imagine what a beautiful place it was in the Garden of Eden. A tremendous paradise where there was just com complete testimonies to God's goodness and provision and protection. David said this in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth, or the firmament, show his handiwork. And uh, give you another little thing here that's interesting. Earth ecology was also designed to be a testimony to God's provision and care. That close harmony of animal and vegetable systems is an incredible thing. Just the genius of the creator and the designer. We've garbage that up too. Shot that down in flames. One day, I sat down and I asked myself this question. If I was really a secular man and I just used my senses around me to look at the world and to think intelligently, if I assumed two things, that maybe there was a God and maybe he made all this, what would I learn about God from looking at, at the world? Now, you just assume that. And so I made this little thing up here. I put it in verse. 
I studied, just looked at the world around me and tried to think what I could come up with about what God would be like. Have you ever looked at, at, at your environment like that and wondered if, if this place didn't have all the garbage that man has done to it? What could I learn about God? Listen. Written in your wondrous world, I found your ways, dear God. I saw today with brand new eyes as morning rose in flood. I felt a blind fall from my mind, and at last, my Lord, I see a world you left your picture in of the way you wanted me. I saw you must love beauty if your hand designed the rose. See that? Because uh, that's a pretty thing. You must be filled with lovely thoughts for flowers just like those. And when the birds and crickets chirp their song on sunny days, I knew that you had made me too to join the psalm of praise. All these little creatures all sing off to the Lord every day. I found a secret. You do smile in the monkey in the zoo. Have you ever looked at a monkey and figured what a laugh God must have had to make a monkey? And a man looks over at the monkey, and the monkey looks back at the man and says to himself, Am I my keeper's brother? From my dog, I guess you made all faithful friendships, too. That's an interesting thing about dogs, you know. And their faithfulness and they hang in there and stay with you. A busy ant preached a sermon to me, carrying food to its little lair. For I knew then, Lord, that whatever else, you were a God that cared. Tiny little weeny creature there. God's set them all up so he can do his thing. So God cares about those tiny little ants as well as the elephants. I learned your steady certainty from the laws that science finds and felt you could be trusted in the changing tides of time. Among the spheres of flaring stars exulting in the sky, I sensed your power with a touch of awe at the grandeur you spread high. You look at a supernova man and then think about the God who put that together. Forgive me, Lord, when in my fear rebellion I hurled. I did not see before your love was written in your world. See that God has written. Right through. Just take a creation around you and sit down and think, what can I learn about God from these things? You'll find an amazing number of things. Just your simple physical senses tell you. That's why in Romans 12, Romans 1 rather, God says, when men knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but becoming vain in their reasonings, their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, the world, the physical earth around us, is a testimony. Now, there's another thing we ought to think about, about what we do know about God. Have you ever wondered why man has a personality? Let's take a materialist, a rationalist, who does not believe there is a personal God, who believes this equation, time plus chance plus matter equals man and the world. Is time personal or impersonal? Impersonal. Chance. Personal or impersonal? Impersonal. Blind, undirected, unguided matter. Personal or un impersonal? Impersonal. And nobody's been able to find in a number of years of philosophy how three impersonals can equal a person. And if you're a rationalist in this world, you have a real problem with who man is. And eventually you come to this conclusion, man is a machine, and that's all he is. 
And when I look at me and I find I am a person, I have a real problem with being a machine. I feel like a person. I feel beauty, love, art, all these things, right? And every time I look at myself, there's a testimony something. I can look at the stars and I can see that God, if he is, if there's a God at all who put this together, he must be very, very big and very, very powerful. But then when I look at me, I know one other thing about God. If he made me, he must be a person because personality can only come from personality. Do you see that other powerful testimony? Who am I if there is no God? I am a machine, that's all. But I don't feel like a machine. And therefore, behind the universe, there cannot be a personality. There must be personality, somewhere, somehow. I was talking to a, a scientist who is helping develop the, the Mars uh, thing, trying to put a rocket on Mars with a spectroscope and a few other things, and he's, him and two other scientists are trying to get it into a box about a foot square, a whole mass spectrograph and all that. And this guy said, you know, he, he said he was a rationalist and, you know, he was a materialist and he didn't really go for this God stuff. And I said to him, well, that's very interesting. And I pushed him out here on this end and I said, you must be a machine. He said, that's right. I said, how do you live as a person then? He said, well, it's very simple. At day, I work in my lab, I put my lab coat on, I'm a machine. At night time, I take off my lab coat and I live it up all night. I said, that's hypocrisy. He said, well, prayer. <laughs> So I was good, hurt, ow, see, because you can't live like a machine. You may think you are and philosophically convince yourself you are, but your being will say, you are a liar, you're a person. So you find a person who says, no, time plus chance plus matter, you push him out and say, you're a machine then. The guy says, yeah, that's right, I'm a machine. And you say, you're a liar because you don't believe that. I do so too, so you live like it. Live without feeling. Live without love, live without beauty, live without faith, live without art, and you will not live. Now, I have a Christian sense. I can use my mind and still study all these things because I'm not lost. That's why scientists today are scared of the universe. They're scared of a computer. A scientist of a hundred years ago, if he saw a computer and understood it, he wouldn't be scared of it. He knew whatever it was, it was just a complex machine. You know why scientists today are scared of computers? Because they think they're machines too, that's all. Look at a computer and says, one day that dude will take me over and be better. Man will be outdated. It will be placed, replaced with a, a bunch of uh, large-scale integrated circuits, see? What a horrible thing. Now, friends, on, on, on. Spirit. Now you have a spirit. I've always wondered and asked this question. Let's say a kid grows up in a home where nobody teaches him about Jesus at all. All right? Matter of fact, let's say somebody, a kid grows up in a house where somebody teaches them the very opposite of what the gospel is. Somebody says to him to be bad. You're in the monsters, you know, the little kid Eddie. His parents are absolutely shocked if he does something good. Oh, you've joined the Boy Scouts. You've done a good deed. Yeah, that's horrifying. You're supposed to, you know, bite people in the neck and do other vampirish type thing. You're not supposed to do what, what he's doing. Now, can you imagine Eddie Munster growing up in this, with all this teaching in his head of the exact reverse? And it is possible to train a child to believe that right is wrong and wrong is right. Psychologically, that is. Now, let me show you a very important law. 
When God designed us, he designed us to grow and develop in three different stages. First of all, our physical body develops. And it is an interesting thing that when a baby is born, it has an automatic hunger for food, for nourishment. And it assumes, quite without reason, that there is food out there to gratify that hunger. That's an assumption. It can't prove it. It doesn't even think it. It just assumes out here there is food. See that? Secondly, its personality begins to develop. It begins to think, its little eyes open, and then immediately you see the difference between a human baby and an animal. A kitten just plays and sings in the sun. A baby picks up its hands and it looks at them as if it could ask a thousand questions about its hands. What are these things? See, with it? And immediately you start to see in the eyes of that little kid an intellectual hunger. And the weird thing is, the kid assumes that there is knowledge out there to meet its hunger. And then growth takes place until one day, we call this the age of accountability, the spirit of that baby develops. It becomes again, now it becomes sensitive. And without question, all the way around the world, when the spirit develops, man reaches out with a spiritual hunger and assumes there is somebody out there to meet it. And when he rejects that, he does it knowingly. I have talked to people, I said, what about the heathen in Africa? I have talked to heathen in Africa, and they're better heathen than we are. I think if a heathen from Africa came over here, and he came up to preach on gods, he'd have a better sermon on gods in, in these countries than we'd have of gods in his country. And the interesting thing is, if you do any traveling at all, is to find just how widespread the idea of God is. All the people who keep coming out of red China invariably come out with a vast and deep spiritual vacuum in their life. I have a friend who lives in Hong Kong, right at the border. He says every now and then they get a refugee, the British government captures them, sentences them, and sends them back into red China again because Hong Kong's too full, can't hold them. And he said he is a Christian. He's often taken them into his house, and he says within a couple of weeks, almost invariably, they give their life to Christ. There's this deep, vast spiritual vacuum in their lives. Do you see why when we said God changes governments around, that he can allow revolutions to come, and a totally anti-religious philosophy takes over a country, cleans out all the religious garbage, and then leaves a spiritual vacuum for the real God to move in? Christians have been praying for 10 years in our country that God would open up the bamboo curtain. We're ready. Believe it's ready to go. Look at this. The revolution in Red China did five things. Put in universal transportation. Used to be rotten to try and preach in China. You couldn't get there. It took you six years to even get into the place you're going to. Taught the people one language. Simplified form of Mandarin Chinese that anybody can learn in a couple of months if you play it. Taught the people to read and write. They couldn't do that very well before. Put in universal communication system so that everybody can hear the thoughts of Mao. We don't mind that at all. Because if the Christians ever get hold of that medium. And then finally, destroyed every vestige of religion in the country. And that's one thing the Christian life can do without religion. Matter of fact, the Red Guards even plowed over the ancestors' graves so they wouldn't worship their ancestors. 
And do you know that last thing has been the greatest hindrance to the preaching of the gospel in China? Brother, when that bamboo curtain dropped, and it is dropping, the same friend said that the Red Chinese just ordered three lots of English-type founts from them, and they're one of their major printing works. And the guy said, what do you want English-type? They never use English-type. He said, we're going to print up a whole bunch of handbooks for tourism. We're going to encourage people from other countries to come in and speak English. That curtain was ready to drop, baby. God did it. God did it. Revolution comes to India, cleans out all the garbage in there, and it becomes an anti-religious philosophy. The real God can do without religion. Now, see the wisdom of God. He knows what he's doing. How does man know about God? John 1, 9, very rapidly now. have to push on here regardless. Who ate my Bible? Here it is. Somebody read out John 1, 9, please. John 1, 9. Yeah. That, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. All right. Who's the light that he's talking about? Jesus. How many men did this light light? Every man that cometh into the world. You know what the Bible says? They are without excuse. There is always a revelation of God, of what God wants and God requires to every man. And it's an interesting thing. Do a little study of society and you'll find this. There has never been a society where selfishness has been admired. Never. Whether the people are black, brown, yellow or white, nobody has ever admired selfishness. Remember in red China? Think, get rid of the selfish things, this bourgeoisie idea. In, in, a, in countries, different, doesn't matter what country, you can go to the most backward, uncivilized tribe that believes in all kinds of wild things, and you'll find they have laws to regulate selfishness. You can't take anybody's wife that you like, you get killed. Matter of fact, some of the laws in heathen countries are stricter than ours. You steal my property, I kill you. Simple as that. Do you see this? And nobody has ever admired somebody for betraying his best friend for reasons of popularity or pleasure or, or gain of money. Nobody's ever done that. People may have differed as to how many wives you have. Some may have said three, some have said one. But everybody has agreed that you can't have any wife you like at any time you want. And that is universal law. Now, you ask me this. Who teaches a kid that selfishness is wrong? Invariably, we C.S. Lewis does a good job on this. He says, you see two kids arguing. One says, you give me a piece of your orange, I gave you a piece of mine. And they both appeal to a law that neither of them has learned. The law that men ought to be fair. And that's the basis of God's law. That men ought to commit themselves to what they really know to be best. And when God enforces this in Ten Commandments, the epitome of that which is most fair and just, everybody says, ah, that's stupid. I don't believe in that law. And they do. Have you ever wondered what would happen to a man who had never, ever been to church, he'd never read a Bible, he'd never heard a sermon, he'd never met a Christian, and how God would judge this man if he stood before God? 
I want you to look in the book of Matthew, and you'll see how God judges man. Book of Matthew, chapter... I'm close all the time. Chapter 7. Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And God tells us a very interesting thing here. He says God will judge us on what we really know to be right, and he will measure that by how much men know in their judgments of other people's lives. And this is the way it goes. Let's imagine, did somebody turn this down for some more? Is it? Still doing weird things here. Let's imagine a guy stands before God and he says, Oh God, I didn't know anything at all about right and wrong. I never listened to a preacher. Never. I, I lived in a heathen, heathen country. I didn't even believe that you were there. See, I didn't know anything about right and wrong. I don't even know why I'm here. You really, you really shouldn't sentence me at all. I want you to imagine that everybody who is ever born has a little tape recorder connected around their neck here. All right? And every time you say something, he is a hypocrite and switches on. Okay? That is an unjust and dirty thing. Switches on. That's right. That's right on. See? Switches on. Everything you make a moral judgment, right or wrong, it switches on. Records what you say. And this man stands before God. He says, I don't know what right and wrong was. God, really, I didn't. And then on, God says, and a huge screen drops down out of the universe. And he stands there looking. And he sees somebody come on the screen. You know what it is? It's himself doing something very unjust and dirty. And then the soundtrack comes on. You know what the soundtrack is? It's his own voice. And his own voice says, that is an unjust and dirty thing. And then he looks. And he sees doing something very hypocritical. And his voice says, You are a hypocrite. And I tell you, friend, on that day, nobody will have a word to say. Who will condemn them? Their own lips? Let me ask you a question. You come from a heathen background like I do. How much did you really know of right and wrong? God is not going to judge you for any more than you really knew. But you knew plenty. Even if you have never seen a Bible in your life and never heard a preacher and never met a Christian. And one day when men stand before God, these words will come to them. Jesus said, He, this is the condemnation, John 3.19, that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Let's uh, close in prayer and then we'll get on to this little wallet. Heavenly Father, Scary thing to know that one day all men will stand before you and have to give an account of the words that have been said. 
We thank you that you are very fair. As we read the passages of judgment in the Bible that we're going to get on to later, we never see you condemning somebody for something they did not understand or did not know or were weak or helpless or unable to do. You are a very fair God. You are a very just judge. And we read your words. It says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And Lord, we ask that you give us understanding of just how much you have shown yourself to man, short of actually coming, standing in front of him and forcing him into submission. We realize that you rule and you direct and you rule by influence and by guidance and by direction and by presenting intelligent motives to mind. You do not force. You do not bash down doors. You knock. And Father, I pray that you make us aware of just how guilty man is for rejecting what you've given him. We do not just look at creation. We look at our own hearts. And we say with sorrow that in the past, O oh God, we have not obeyed what we knew to be true. Help us to sift from our own experiences the, the same kind of experience of the young man or the young woman that stands before us that says, I don't know anything about God and I don't want to. And help us to understand why you said that man is guilty, that all, every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be shown guilty before you. Now bless us help us this morning in Jesus. Lovely name. Amen. And there it is, The King's Subjects by Winky Prattney. It was a great message with a lot of a lot of a lot of information stuffed into a little bit of time. And I hope you got it all. If not, it's there. Go back and listen to it again. And uh, I hope you'll all be back with us next time. Thanks. <laughs>